It's that time of the year. Your vacation is coming up. You can already hear the beach waves, feel the warm breeze, relax, and think about work. You really, really want it all to work out while you're away. Monday.com gives you and the team that peace of mind. When all work is on one platform and everyone's in sync, things just flow. Wherever you are, tap the banner to go to monday.com. Welcome back to the Lantern Rouge Cycling Podcast with Benji Nice and Stage 10 of the Tour de France today, as well as Stage 2 of Tirreno Adriatico, which is kind of going under the radar. Typically a, a warm-up race for the Giro d'Italia in European spring, now kind of being shown up. Uh, by the Tour de France being on at the same time as that. But the big news of today actually was before the race even started because it was the rest day coronavirus testing results for all the riders. Fortunately, none of the riders have tested positive on the rest day for coronavirus. I believe four staff members, one on um, only one on each of the teams that tested positive, um, have tested positive for coronavirus. So no, there hasn't been a case of two staff members on one team testing positive, although I believe there are bubbles within the team bubbles where the riders are kind of separated from a lot of the staff members. But the big news was actually Christian Prudhomme, the race director for the Tour de France, tested positive for coronavirus, which isn't really surprising when you think about it. He's probably shaking hands or being around lots and lots of people compared to other uh, the riders or other people in the race. It's like when the politicians were often the first people to contract uh, corona when it first really kicked off uh, or, or celebrities or politicians because they probably have random people coming up to them in the street to say hello. But anyway, he, he tested positive. He's left the race and his deputy in charge will take over. Uh, you remember, you might have remembered a couple of days ago, Prudhomme was in the... Uh, in the race director's car with, I think, the French Prime Minister. So we'll see how that goes. But, yeah, that was a big news. Fortunately, all the riders were fine, though, and the race went on without anyone having to DNF. But throwing a Benji now to run through the stage profile, a pretty straightforward one for you in stage 10. I would like to quickly kick in on the words you said before about Prudhomme. I feel like it's a good message that, well, it's not great that he has it, but the fact that someone high profile has it might, keep it in everybody's mind that COVID's still a thing and that people should go with marks on to the races and so forth and prevent even going to the races by the parkour and that kind of stuff. A lot of teams have noted on it and I think it's a valuable message to repeat here. Nonetheless, about today's Tour de France stage, we had one that I was looking forward to quite a lot, but it was a bit anticlimactic, not going to lie, and it didn't really offer what I was hoping for. We had a stage from Ile de Leron, to Ile de Ré. I think it's the only stage in history in the Tour de France that starts on an island and finishes on an island next to the coast of France, to the west of France. Now, the stage was meant to be an echelon madness, but this morning, there was hardly any wind, not going to lie. The weather was pretty much portraying 25k an hour winds to almost like 10k an hour winds at certain points on the most important sections for a potential echelon. So, there weren't really the perfect ingredients to have the echelon cake happening here, so that really didn't really turn out too well. Nonetheless, plenty of teams were very nervous throughout the parkour, but we'll go into that in a second. So basically the parkour, 168 kilometers, pure flat, and an intermediate sprint with about roughly 39 kilometers to go. And that's roughly it. They had 
echelon potential throughout the parkour, but the wind had to be there for that. Nonetheless, there was plenty of action in the peloton, and it started off quite quickly. We had two breakaway riders trying to get out of the front at the start, and that was Mikkel Scher from CCC and Stefan Kung from Groupama FDG. So it doesn't really matter that Pinot is out of the place. The team is still fighting for a potential break when to show themselves in the race. So that's great for them. The Cunning Quickstep basically hit the front after a good, I think it was 40-ish kilometers, 33 kilometers. When they hit a section that was supposed to be echelon worthy, they tried quite hard at that moment. But the only thing it did was, well, it dropped like 10 people in an echelon. So it wasn't really that effective. And mainly was about pools, for example, but also Thibaut Pinot, Mikkel Nieve van Bale, and another Ineos rider I can't directly think of. Nonetheless, while that was happening, while those 10 riders were behind, we had a crash happening in the peloton, and the Evidication riders was hit or something in the peloton. And yeah, I'm not really sure what caused the crash, but he hit another rider and he hit another rider, and they kept on going, and about 10 riders hit the deck. And there was a split up in the peloton. The riders that crashed were, for example, Skujins, Hissink, Roach, and we had an abandonment, Bewley. That's unfortunate. I think Roach looked pretty bad as well, so I'm not sure if he's still in the race or not. I uh, Honestly, looking at his crash, I'm guessing not, but I hope he is. I haven't been able to check up to this point. Nonetheless, uh, after that, we pretty much saw that group come back again, that second group. Yeah, quick quick step for some reason went to the front there to try and I don't know they tried to put the pace down again, but the the wind clearly wasn't that strong because other than the crash which caused that split there, I didn't really see any additional riders getting dropped when quick step went onto the front uh, after that crash. So Alaphilippe was on the front. Um, not really sure what the rationale was for that or why they went there. That was like with a hundred k's to go, but then it kind of went back to. Nothing really happening. And I had a nap for an hour. Basically after, well, while your nap was happening, we didn't really see too many action, but slowly but surely, it was very noticeable that this is so not a parkour that should have been in the Tour de France. About every kilometer you had a, a very dangerous section in the sense of a roundabout or a corner that was not really signaled very well that it was a dangerous corner. And honestly, according to pretty much quite a few people I've asked, there's plenty of roads near there that are much wider and that would have been much safer. But yeah, I think they forced to go through a few cities. Maybe it's commercially, maybe it's because it gave them money. But I, I'm honestly not sure why, but it just felt like an unsafe route to take. And it definitely showed after that with basically, well, first we had an intermediate sprint. That's the good part where no crashes happened, luckily had an intermediate sprint basically taken by the peloton and the winner there was Trentin he took it just ahead of Sagan and Bennett in third but about that sprint they didn't really try too hard there was one person who actually seemed to try a bit hard it was Sagan to get onto the wheel of Trentin but Trentin didn't really go full force Bennett was very happy with the third place and didn't really care too much after that so it was pretty much looking like he was saving energy did you feel like that was the same or did you nab during the intermediate sprint no, I think Sagan is really, really, I mean, he obviously always is, but he's trying as hard as possible to get every point as possible on the road from here on out for the green jersey because it's a genuine fight for that green jersey. And we'll see that when we talk about the finale. But yeah, after the intermediate sprint, 
nothing too much happened again. And then, yeah, Benji, when did the crosswind action really start again? Or when did Ineos try to actually split the race up once again? I think they tried to do it after Rochelle, where another crash happened. And in La Rochelle, there was a crash that basically was because there was a corner that looked dangerous, but it wasn't signaled at all that it was a dangerous corner. So the riders obviously couldn't know that they had to watch out in that corner. And the moment we saw that corner, we knew something would happen, unfortunately. And it certainly did. We had a crash in the peloton by Davide Formolo, also Guillaume Martin, Pogacar. Those two were held back by the crash. I'm not sure whether they actually hit the deck. We also had Coca hit the ground. And I think those were the main riders that were on the ground. I think Formula didn't look too good after that. So I'm not sure if he's going to be a valuable asset to Pogacar in the upcoming week. Let's hope it's not too bad. But it looked pretty, it looked pretty hurt. Let's say that. Well, after that, they pretty much all came back. Pogacar first. Martin had his whole team bring him back. And the last person to basically hit the peloton again was Kukar, who basically used every trick in the book. He drafted for like over 30 seconds behind the car of his team. So that was uh, quite interesting. And I'm curious whether he actually got a penalty for it. After that, you indeed had the crosswind action with Ineos. Yeah, once again, Ineos being really well organized in crosswinds. And they obviously would have circled this stage quite a while ago. And this would have been their plan for a long time. Not just They didn't just think of this on the rest day. But unfortunately for Ineos, there just wasn't enough wind to really create any meaningful splits today. Um, you'll see Miguel Angel Lopez, he did get separated initially, but the whole of Astana went back and he actually got to catch back on pretty quickly on the midpoint of the bridge. Uh, I think it's like the second longest bridge in France. I'm not sure. We don't do tourism on this podcast. <laughs> and that's why it not being a very strong cross tailwind made it yeah easier for Miguel Angel Lopez to catch back up. So... He didn't lose any time today. No other GC contenders really lost time from what I saw. So, yeah, a shame for, for Ineos plan, the weather not really helping them out. Um, it would have been interesting to see some really big splits and echelons across that bridge. That would have been some awesome, yeah, just awesome to see on the camera and on the helicopter shot. The real thing that was splitting up the race in the last 20 kilometres wasn't the wind at all. It was what Benji mentioned about these technical and all these roundabouts, yeah, every roundabout or corner, I felt like Roglic was losing the wheel of Wout van Aert. And I think Wout van Aert could have contested the sprint today. But, well, no, he definitely could have contested the sprint today if, if they were riding for him in the green jersey competition. But obviously, that's not what Yama Visma's main priority is. But he had to do a lot of work helping out Primoz Roglic today, making sure he was in good position. Yumbo Visma didn't, they look shaky again, I've got to be honest, um, through some of the roundabouts, through the corners. Roglic, yeah, lost the wheel of uh, Janssen and Wavanaar a few times. There was one notable occurrence where there was a big roundabout and they went the wrong way around the roundabout and then had to, instead of going the wrong, sorry, instead of going the long way, they actually braked and almost came to a halt and then went back to the narrower way and almost went to like the last position in the peloton while it was strung out. So that wasn't ideal for them. Obviously, Wout van Aert had to probably burn a lot of energy bringing Roglic back up to the front. I'd also like to say that next year, yeah, the Jumbo Visma yellow jersey has got to be changed because from the overhead helicopter shot, you, you actually cannot see 
where Roglic is really. No. Um, it's almost impossible to tell. It's a real shame because in crosswinds like that, you want to quickly assess, okay, where is the yellow jersey? Is he, is he in good position, etc.? cetera? And you, and you just can't tell because they had six or seven riders sort of strung out all along the peloton. You know, Coos and Bennett were sort of lingering at the back. They weren't at the front during that, that section. So that's one of my biggest my biggest gripes. Uh, it doesn't sound like it's important, but, you know, people talk about it, the jerseys as, you know, you've got to respect the jersey so you can't wear the same colour jersey, but it's actually practically does have a, a meaningful impact on me being able to watch the race and I'm sure a lot of other people too. But how did you assess Jumbo Visma protecting Roglic? Did it not really matter that they lost the wheels because at the end, end of the day the wins weren't strong anyway? Well, at the end of the day, it didn't really matter because the outcome was good for them. But I do feel like they made mistakes. We see that Ineos keeps their leaders at the front at all times and is really good at assessing where to go in certain situations. Kwiatkowski's a genius in that. Like, honestly, Roe as well. But Jumbo kind of fell. You said it at the roundabout where they started taking the wrong way around and then took the right way around last minute, causing them to go way back. And they actually returned to the front with Wout van Aert at the other side of the peloton. So I'm not sure what happened there, but Wout van Aert was basically on the right of the screen, in the peloton on the left, that is. And on the other side of the road, he had a three-man train with Roglic at the back, and I think he was in the wheel of Bennett. So Bennett's not exactly known of being the best echelon rider in the world. We've seen that quite a few times in history. But it's great that he was able to save Roglic here, because... Fanard was on the other side, maybe he was caught out somewhere because of that roundabout, but it was not an ideal situation and it pretty much confirms what we said previously in that Echelon try stage, I think it was stage 7 or 6 or something, the one where Ineos tried in the last 8 kilometers, but it didn't really work out too well. We felt like Jumbo was a bit too far to the back and I felt like it was the same thing today. Yeah, but as you said, didn't really matter. There wasn't enough wind for Ineos' plan to work. And I think things calmed down a fair bit, actually. When we saw Jumbo Visma assemble in the last 10 kilometers with like four riders or three riders plus Roglic, uh, we saw Movistar on the front for quite a while, Benji. And it was weird because we thought they're not riding for a sprinter. But then I thought, well, the pacer has really come out of the race because everyone's tried to split it. There was no real wind. Quickstep are probably assembling their lead-out train. Sunweb were tired because they'd actually worked a fair bit for Bowl before. Uh, so that's why Movistar somehow had Imanol Erreti on the front, I think, riding for Alejandro Valverde. But into the finale, it was once again Team Sunweb looking like they had this, looking, being the most important word here, looking like they had the strongest lead-out train. They had five riders or four riders plus Case Bowl. It was all looking rosy for him. The favourites for the sprint were Bowl, Ewan, Bennett, and actually, Wout van Aert, I was looking in, in the markets, he actually came back down, even though I thought, eh, he's had to do a lot of work in this race, actually, and especially in the last 25 kilometres. He wasn't really a factor in the sprint at all, Wout van Aert. So it was between those three as the favourites, Bold, Ewan and Bennett. Sunweb took it up once again. Ewan, I think, I don't know, sometimes it's quite hard in the finale like that with crosswinds etc even though it wasn't too bad I always do think yeah Bennett's not great in the crosswinds but I'm not sure Ewan is very good in them either uh, but yeah Sunweb let it out early then either Bol lost the wheel of his lead out men or they just yeah they ran out of riders too soon 
Michael, Michael Morku earned his paycheck today with an extremely late lead out of Sam Bennett. There was sort of a, a chicane section, not too technical. They wouldn't have had to break, but a chicane where it would have been difficult to move up. And then Morku with Bennett on his wheel, Ewan marking Bennett, and then Sagan actually in a good position fourth wheel. Bowl had been shunted back to like 10th or something. Murku dropped off Bennett with like 150 to go, maybe even less. And Bennett was able to, you know, finish the job. It was pretty good work from Quickstep Train, keeping Bennett in good position. They're obviously sat close to the Sunweb Train. Ewan tried to come around Bennett to the left-hand side, but just ran out of road. He was coming. He wasn't coming that quickly off Bennett's wheel. I mean, Ewan had a perfect sit on Bennett's wheel, but... Yeah, maybe 50, 70 metres too short. But, yeah, Morku's lead out did the job for Bennett. Sagan actually coming in third and a close third too. He was on Bennett's wheel. Probably the best sprint we've seen from Sagan so far in the uh, in the Tour de France this year. I, I quite liked what I saw from that sprint from Sagan. And the thing that shocked me, Benji, was that Bennett didn't even know he'd won on the line. Like he wasn't confident in it. And that seemed to me like his confidence before this win was completely shot because he won by a pretty good margin. For a sprinter, the margin he won by, like half a wheel or so, maybe even more, it, it wasn't a small margin by sprinters' standards. And most sprinters would have posted up for the uh, the finish line celebration with that sort of margin. And he was waiting for the race, the team radio confirmation and then was like crying after the stage. So obviously a lot of pressure has been on Sam Bennett getting trying to get that to Koenig Quickstep sprint victory in this year's Tour de France. You know, he's come over there from Bora Hansgrohe, getting the Quickstep lead-out train, etc. He's the man. He's their sprinter there. And, yeah, he lost to Ewan in one of the other sprint stages and was close before, but now getting the job done must be a sweet relief for him. And also going into the green jersey. Uh, and from what I've seen in the calculations, he is 21 points now ahead of Peter Sagan in the green jersey competition. So... That's another element to this that was massive for Sam Bennett. But yeah, did you? Who do you think was the MVP? Or what, what's our, what's the thing we're introducing, Benji? The goat of the day. Who the was goat, the goat which of the is day? Greatest of the day, instead <laughs> yeah, of uh, goat. goat, greatest of all time, greatest of all day. So it's goat with a D. Okay, that's it. Who was it today for you in that sprint? Oh, if it's not, maybe it's not in the sprint. But who was it for you today? Uh, it's a bit hard to say. I'd say Merku, but yeah. I'd say Merkel because he basically saved Bennett's sprint near the end there. Yeah, I'd agree with you there. Uh, maybe Juan Fanart as well, but you know he's probably been had that that prize retrospectively awarded for a lot of the previous days. We'll, so we'll give it to Merku. The top ten was Bennett, Ewan, Sagan, Elio Viviani actually coming in fourth. Mads Pedersen, another nice sprint for fifth. Andre Greipel, sixth in this sprint. <laughs> Brian Kokar, seventh. Case Bowl 8th, Jesper Stoven 9th, and Luca Mezgetz 10th. Now, I think the gap between the first three riders and those other riders from 4 to 10 was quite was actually quite big. Like, they weren't close uh, on the line, but still quite a nice result for Andre Greifel getting a top 10. I've got to admit, I didn't think he'd even get a top 10 in this year's Tour de France. So what, why do you think he was able to get a top 10 in this sort of stage, Benji, when he's been non-competitive in all the other sprints? I feel like he hasn't really had any proper team support neither to put him at the front and he doesn't really have it to put himself at the front. 
And today he had one person that brought him to the front. The person, I think, I think it was Van Osbroek. He's known in his team for being the rider that always offers himself up for other people and is not afraid to do so without taking the initiative to sprint for himself too much while he might actually be able to. And he brought Grapple towards the end. Pretty much in fifth position, I think, the sprint happened. So I think it was in the wheel of Sagan, pretty much. And he launched pretty early. He was, I think, thrown around a bit, but I'm not sure by who. He got around and he pretty much sat up, but not really sitting up, just not doing anything. He just sprinted from the saddle for the last, like, 100 meters. So he basically sprinted to survive for six there, but still great. Love seeing him up there. He's a kind guy, so I'm very happy to see him do anything there. But I'd also like to add something about Bennett. This is a uh, small fact. He's the 101st rider to win a stage in each Grand Tour. And one of the riders that you wouldn't expect to not have that yet is Sagan, obviously, because he's going to be riding the Giro near the end of the season as well, so that he can get that, well, that for himself as well, a victory in all three Grand Tours. So pretty cool for him. He's got that on the record now. And yeah, it's a pretty limited amount of riders that has done it. But anyway, on to stage 11, which is actually quite interesting for the green jersey. Now, we've titled this podcast Green Jersey Battle Intensifies, and I'm not counting Peter Sagan out for the green jersey just yet. Sam Bennett's now actually the clear favourite to win the green jersey in the markets, but tomorrow's profile into Poitiers, 167-kilometre stage, looks like another bunch sprint, looks like a nothing stage. I think it's going inland, so I don't think there's... It's not projected to be a massive crosswind stage or windy stage, but there's an intermediate sprint 107 kilometers into the stage. There's a few rolling climbs before then. What do you think Bora are going to do in the, first, in the 10 kilometers before that intermediate sprint, Benji? I kind of believe that they're going to try and put the rays a bit on fire like they did on that one stage, but I'm not very sure it's going to be overly efficient here because uh, Bennett's team... Well, I think he was caught off guard more in that stage than actually being unable to survive it. And maybe it's because it's at the start of the stage that it's more effective towards the riders that warm up before the race starts. Potentially, the Koenig didn't do that that day and it hit them harder. Some other teams decided to do that. I, I'm not sure if that influences much. I'm not sure it's going to uh, really drop Bennett here, to be honest. And the climbs aren't as hard. It's a cat 4, 1.1 Ks at 4% then not even a categorized climb just before the sprint and then a false flat. I still do think there is a chance that Bora drop Bennett, or at least they don't drop him, but they put him at the back of the peloton just clinging on, and functionally speaking, he isn't able to contest the intermediate sprint. So they don't need to drop him fully. They just need to have him out of the picture. Still, though, even if Sagan does get the full 20 points, I'm not sure You know that's not enough to recoup the points that he, you know, he's 21 points behind Bennett. Then the finale is has a 700-metre climb at 4.1%, uh, about three cresting about three kilometres before. Again, I don't think that's going to be enough to dislodge Bennett. He should be able to get over that, no problem. You know, think about how long the Poggio is or uh, the Chipressa, and, you know, he's not going to – it's unlikely he'll get dropped there. So – but yeah, I still think Sagan is a genuine chance to win tomorrow's stage, even if Bennett and Ewan are there because of the way Sagan looked today and because this, the profile's a little bit harder in the final uh, nine kilometres for him tomorrow. I don't really have a firm view on who will win in these bunch sprints, to be honest. It could be one of Ewan or 
or Bennett, or Sagan, and Bowl as well. But for GC, no change, obviously, but there was a change in the markets, a big move in Primoz Roglic from sort of being above, oh, sorry, below 50% chance. He was a 44% chance. He's now at like 53, 54% chance. So obviously him not losing time on today's stage, people have reacted to that and think that's a good thing for him. I'd have to agree. Uh, there were certainly moments where he could have lost time and it was a risky stage. So Roglic is now odds-on favourite to win GC. Pogacar and Bernal still second and third favourites. Any last comments on Tour de France Stage 10, Benji, which ultimately was a just a bunch sprint stage, but we managed to get a lot of life out of it. There's still always things to talk about in the Tour de France. It sure is, but I'm afraid that's about it for, uh, for the Tour de France for me. The other thing on the menu today... We've got two more things to talk about, actually, is a stage in Tirreno. It was not a pancake flat route. We started in Camaiore and finished in Folonica. It started up with a small hill, 200 meters high, not too intense, but didn't do anything, really. It just launched some attackers, including Canola, who is in the breakaway for two days. And if I recall correctly, he also won the KOM in the middle of the stage. Nonetheless, we had an intermediate sprint. Not important compared to the Tour de France one, so it's really unnotable to talk about in this parkour. When it comes to the Tirreno finish, though, we had a pretty cool leader by Mathieu van der Poel. Yeah, so as was happening yesterday, Merlier was being led out by uh, Mathieu van der Poel for the sprint, and van der Poel led it out for ages from far out, like two two and a half k's, three k's and ended up sort of dropping Merlier off really late. And it was a messy sprint once again. There wasn't really a dominant train in the last 1,500 metres. Ackerman was in better position today. And, yeah, but it was sort of the role reversal, whereas yesterday Gaviria kicked really early. It was Ackerman who came up the right-hand side and kicked before the other riders. Rick Zabel was there as well. I think Alex Dowsett kind of split up the group because with there was a corner with 1,300 metres to go and the, the motorbike was really, really close to him on the front, Dowsett, the ISU rider, and that gave him a massive draft when he kicked out of that corner. Ballerini was being led out by Quickstep. He was kind of left on the front a little bit and at the mercy of Ackerman. Ackerman came around early and, yeah, managed to hold it on the line. He had Gaviria trying to barge his way through to his left-hand side, I think, not sure who he pushed out of the way, Gavidia, but he was in a red jersey, I think the points jersey, because um, Ackerman was in the leader's jersey. And, yeah, forced his way through a gap that wasn't that didn't exist. The results on the line for the sprint was Ackerman first, Fernando Gavidia second, Zabel third, Davide Ballerini fourth, Tim Merlier it was fifth, and then it wasn't really the sprinters. Then there was a big gap to the uh, other riders. But back-to-back World Tour stage wins at Torreno for Pascal Ackerman. The lead out for Gavidia has not been, it's not been fantastic, I've got to say. Yesterday being left on the front really early, and yeah, but you know he's got Richese there, but Juan Sebastian Molano lost fifty three seconds. He, I sort of expect him to be doing a better job as a lead out man. Mikel Berg lost time as well, five minutes. So yeah, he, he kind of does have a team set up to lead him out for stage wins, but it's not been. Not been perfect by any means for UAE Emirates and Gavidia. And he loses two stages by the tie width to Pascal Ackerman on back-to-back days. Interestingly enough, Alberto Dainese, the team Sunweb sprinter, is being led out by Michael Matthews in Terreno, which is kind of interesting. Did he have a crash yesterday? Uh, he actually crashed indeed yesterday and quite hard as well because I think 
a member of Gazprom pushed him to the line because he couldn't really get there on his own strength. And today he was actually looking very good. He was, I think, in the wheel of Merlir just in the sprint. And there was some arguing on Twitter once again about deviating lines. And I somewhat agreed, but somewhat didn't in the sense that the moment that Akamon started sprinting past uh, the rider who was up front, I think his lead out, I'm not sure about that, he went past him on the right, and that basically forced everybody to go to the right. Well, the internet said that Medellir deviated his line to the right, while he didn't really need to because he was the only rider that had a gap ahead of him and could sprint straight. But I disagree a tiny bit. I feel like the rider on the left of him made him go to the right a bit. I'm not overly sure about it. There's no real straight answer to it in my honest opinion today. He uh, basically brought Dainese out of contention because he hit him, Medellir hit Dainese, and Dainese basically had to stop a sprint at that point and finished 14th. I'm pretty sure he probably was launching towards the top six here. So despite that, I do believe that Dainese is better on the flat than Matthews in a sprint. But that was Terreno. Uh, the first two stages being sprint stages, maybe they thought something would happen with their climbs on uh, in the parkour today, but they, they certainly didn't. Tomorrow's stage, hopefully a little bit more exciting for the punchers. There's uh, the Poggio Morella, which they do a couple of times, 1.6 Ks at 10.8%, most notably after 208 kilometers into the stage with, I think, 9 Ks left after they crest it. So hopefully there could be someone going clear at the top of that climb tomorrow. We will see Froome and Thomas looking fine. Thomas particularly is looking pretty good. Ineos riding for him, it seems, at Terreno for GC. Uh, but that's that's it for the two races today. Benji, what's, there's a couple of transfer news, and then we'll get out of here. Firstly, we've got a rider from Seg Racing Academy that is transferring. He's going to be joining Bora Hansgrohe, and his name is Jordi Meus. Jordi Meus has won quite a few races this season already. At the Czech Tour, he beat the likes of Medellir and also Max Kanter in a sprint. So he's not really the worst of them all and definitely has a sprinting talent. A Belgian joining Bora is, I think it's been since the days of the old Bora Argon team, which is quite a while ago. I'm not actually sure which rider it was, to be honest. But nonetheless, he also won a stage at the Giro U23 and uh, came second on another one, I think. So he's got the talent. He's going to be a good addition, I think, for the sprints. And it's great to have another Belgian sprinter. It's, yeah, it's like we're being blessed with so many talents recently. And, yeah, I'm happy. The second transfer was Taj Jones to Israel Startup Nation. Now, I think he's actually joining their Continental Pro Conti team or development team, uh, Israel Cycling Academy, for a year or so before he joins the World Tour team in 2022. That's my understanding of it. Obviously, Greipel is going to be on the way out pretty soon uh, at Israel Startup Nation. He's not in their long-term plans, and Taj Jones, 20 years old, big guy, I think he's like 6'2", 6'3", um, and just, yeah, won, won a stage in Tour de Langkawi, oh, Langkawi, sorry. But that's all we have for today. Tomorrow looks like it could be an inter- interesting stage for the points classification, uh, and I don't really expect any GC movement in the Tour de France. Torino might be a bit more of an exciting finale. That's all from us. We won't take up any more of your time. Ciao. Even on a budget, quality is non-negotiable. That's why Quince is the place to score high-end essentials at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Get your hands on buttery soft cashmere sweaters from just 60 bucks, Italian leather jackets, and so much more. 
And the best part about Quince, they exclusively partner with factories committed to safe, ethical and responsible manufacturing. Elevate your style without the elevated price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com/upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns.